and welcome to another Doctor Who show, Series 11 Hot Take. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this week we are looking at Demons of the Punjab, Episode 6 of the series by Vinay Patel. Rob, how are you? I'm very well, Dave, and very excited. We're into the second half of the series now. And if I can just leap ahead briefly, I quite enjoyed this. Uh, me too, me too. Uh, this will be the hottest of hot takes because it's 32 degrees in Melbourne today. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's dive in. Rob, you started off by saying you liked it. Um, we'll get your word of the week and then let's talk about that. All right. So my word of the week this week, Dave, is destined. And my word of the week this week is context. Excellent. And briefly, yes, I just thought this was a really good, solid story. Back in history, had shades of Father's Day from the first Eccleston series in in some pretty obvious ways. And I just thought that was really well done. I absolutely agree. This is, well, in a hot take, I'm going to jump in and say this is my favourite of the series so far. Yeah, look, I think I think that's a very fair thing to say. Uh, I'm still tossing up where I'm going to score it, but in terms of the emotional heft, the storyline, the setting, I think they were down in the uh, the southern end of Spain filming this, and it just looked gorgeous. It really did. So this, I thought, was a lovely story. It had some twists and some turns, something that the Chibnall episodes haven't had so far. It was nicely written. It was well performed and it looked really, really lovely. The direction was delicate mm-hmm. and, and I liked that. Uh, look, I think we're going to have a very positive conversation. And I have to say I'm relieved, Rob, because yeah. I was thinking during the week, how many times can we go on these podcasts and say the same thing? Well, exactly. And I think some other podcasts are having the same issues. I won't single out any in particular, but I was listening to one this morning and they were saying what they felt was wrong with uh, the Saranga conundrum. They actually didn't like it as much as we did. We, we actually gave that a reasonable pass. It was arachnids before it that we really were down mm, on. Yes. Um, but they were really down on Saranga and they were saying, but we really like Jody, and, and we really like what they're trying to do. But, 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 but. And you could tell the conflict in them because they just wanted to, to, to love the show and they don't want to bag it. And I think we're the same. We don't want to bag things just for the sake of bagging it. That's that's ridiculous, you know. But sometimes in the past few weeks, we've felt that there's been a lot wrong with the, with the episodes. And it's hard not to. Yeah, look, I agree. So let's pull back out to 30,000 feet and just talk a bit about the setting of the episode, which, of course, is the partition of 1947. I thought it was a really clever move and a really effective move not to go too deep down into what the partition was and the background to it and the complications about it and the prejudices involved in mm. it and who sold out who and who who undermined what and, and, and all that sort of thing because it's a phenomenally complicated issue. It, it's, it's really, really difficult. Instead, they just look at how it affected two families. That's right. I mean, if people want to go and learn about the petition, that's the good thing about these historicals. Go and learn about it in depth. Here we just concentrate on the characters. And I think that's as it should be. I think 
kids in particular would be bored rigid if this was a dry sort of, you know, here's what happened here and here's what happened there. And as you say, it's a very complex thing. They couldn't really cover it properly in 45 minutes anyway. No, and what I said in our Rose episode, I think is doubly relevant here. There will be kids and indeed adults who will say, I don't know anything about this partition of what happened in 1947. And they'll go and they'll Google this and they'll read books. And exactly like I did when I was a kid watching historical stories and going out and getting books about Marco Polo and books about the French Revolution and books about the Highlands and, and you know, Culloden and all that sort of thing. Mm. And if that happens, that's a really good thing. So I thought the way they dealt with it here by making it a personal story without overloading it with baggage and, and complication was a really smart move. And, and, yeah, very, very much like some of those older historicals you see in the Hartnell era. Do you think it's a fluke, Dave, that our two best episodes of the series so far are historicals, and one of them even has Chibnall's fingerprints on it? I've been wondering that myself over the last half hour as I've been preparing for this, and I just don't know. Yeah, is, is it because Chibnall doesn't do science fiction well and he does do historical? I don't know. It's a thought we might have to come back to at the end of the series. Yeah, it's 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 a real interesting one. I mean, there's obviously a sci-fi element to this, and you know, uh, let let's be fair. Well, at least I'm think I'm being fair. Uh, again, a, a villain that wasn't a villain. Mm-hmm. That they're assumed to be assassins, but oh no, we're no longer assassins. We are, you know, speakers for the dead sort of thing. Actually, the the follow-up uh, novel to uh, Ender's Game was called Speaker for the Dead, where Ender became a Speaker for the Dead. I, I was wondering if it was maybe cribbing a bit from that. But anyway, I put that aside for the moment. Um, monsters slash aliens that just weren't what they seem to be is the theme yet again. And I thought, oh, really? Really? You know? <laughs> I was thinking for once we might have had just aliens who were being nasty for a particular reason, and they weren't being nasty at all. Yeah, I was very impressed with the way they were dealt. We had the flashes, and then we had the, the the brief shots, and then we had some background to them. And when we first saw those flashes, I got a very Buffy the Vampire Slayer vibe from them. Mm. Uh, and then when I saw them a bit better, I got a very Coquillian vibe from them. Yep. And then uh, <laughs> later on, I actually got a very Babylon 5 vibe from them, particularly that Soul Hunters episode that they did. Oh, wasn't there a monster in Babylon 5 that moved in a really f- weird way? Like, it was like they were moving quickly, but it looked really slow. I'm probably not describing it very well, but there was a weird yeah. effect as they shuffled around. Oh, the Druck. Ah, th- yeah, that's it, the Druck. Oh, sorry, when you thought you had a thing in Babylon 5 that moved really slowly and looked fast, I thought you meant Dr. Franklin, but no, you're thinking <laughs> of the Druck. Uh, yeah, they were, they were really effective, and... Yeah, yes, it was a shame that it was again a villain that uh, isn't a monster or isn't a villain and isn't just a baddie for Jodie to really get her teeth into. That said, though, they played the revelation really well and they played the, the, the turning of it really well to the point that my perception of them changed through the episode. There were moments in that forest chase scene where I was getting into it and I'm like, no, Jodie, the, the monster's appeared. Quick, get away, get away. You, you know, you're sort of doing that sort of thing. And then at the end, when they pop in that last time, you're like, oh, they're here. This, yeah. is, this is serious now. And, it, you know, that's that's what a script should do. If you're feeling different emotions based on the change of these characters, that's a really good thing. Can I also give big praise here mm. to the fact that the exposition about them was 
them having a conversation. It wasn't yes. an info dump, and it wasn't all done at once. They gave the doctor a bit of information. Then she said, what about this? And they said, we'll tell you, cut away. And then we got to learn it as the doctor explained it to others as the story unfolded. That's how you do exposition, Chris Chibnall. <laughs> learn a lesson from Vinay. <laughs> Indeed. This episode, I, I was just so pleased with in, in that respect, in so many other respects. It was just really good to be watching a good episode of Doctor Who again. And I'll have more to say, actually, when I get to my score out of 10. So let's go right back to the start, because I've got a couple of notes here. Hmm. The intro, I thought, was kind of interesting and kind of weird. One point we have to make is that the Doctor's clearly got back to the TARDIS since the Taranga conundrum. Yeah, it just became a complete non-issue, which is, again, something that really bothered me about that story. It was being set up to be, we've lost the TARDIS. Oh, my God, we're four days away from it. It's in a scrapyard where people will be picking it up and taking it because that's what they do in scrapyards. Holy hell. And it just petered out as a concept in the Saranga conundrum. And here, yeah, they've got it back. They've been traveling again, doing other things. It's not even mentioned. That That is annoying. You know, I find that very annoying. Yeah, and that, that is something you have to lay at the foot of the showrunner. Oh, absolutely. You can't say you've lost the TARDIS in a, in a scrapyard and then not have it resolved. <laughs> you just can't. No, I mean, if that was the case, why not simply have the TARDIS on board the ship? Precisely. You know, we, we, we picked you up and we picked up your blue box, your whatever. Anyway, that was last week's episode. Um, but it's, but, but it, it, it is a point because I, I was half expecting it to be resolved in this one and it wasn't. And so it's just been waved away. Well, what about the Doctor's sore stomach last week? That Was that going to be a thing? Oh, obviously not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Just things sort of thrown away. Then we sort of got the old lady from Titanic opening. Um, you know, I had a great love once and there's a mystery and here's my souvenir and it's all too hard to talk about and the flowering <laughs> music comes in and then we go in Titanic, we flash back in Doctor Who, we time travel back and That's now right. get to tell the story. That's a perfectly legitimate framing device, but it, it did have a real old lady from Titanic field. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong at all, Nanny Umbreen. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> was was driving it all there. Any Any points from you, Rob? Uh, no, look, I'm, I'm happy to, to rip into talking about the characters, and I think that'll tease out a few more things to do with the story. Mm-hmm. Where should we start, the support cast or the, the TARDIS crew? I want to start with the support cast because I'm very impressed by them. Okay. I thought they carried this script off very well. The, the woman who played Umbreen was a delightful character. She sparkled. She had humanity. Um, which is great from that point of view. It's a shame because when Yaz stands next to her, she looks even paler and less interesting by comparison. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, I, and I love Prem, and I, I really love Manish, actually. I thought the guy who played Manish did a really good job of letting us see and understand the motivations of the character, having us certainly not empathise with him, but sympathise to some extent with him and and give a really intense and contained performance, as did the guy who played Prem. I, I was really impressed with this guest cast. What about you, Rob? Yeah, Manish, you know, with those glasses, sort of gave you that feeling of the, the intellectual who's thinking about things, maybe thinking about things a bit too much. 
you know, I think uh, Prem was saying he's listening to, was it radio broadcasts or pamphlets? Uh, pamphlets. pamphlets, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you could just see that, yes, he's he, he is that thinker and, you know, uh, the glasses really set him off to, to have that intellectual look. And, and looking for his place in the world, not just content to say, this is my home and this is my girlfriend and this is, this is life and I'm just going to live one day to another. Actively looking at how does the world work? How do I fit into this world? And that's a sort of a character that can naturally fall into these more extreme and dogmatic groups. And interestingly enough, Manish was the one who really grasped this idea that the demons were demons. And so again, that showed his willingness to grab it, dogma and, and thought and and really dive deep into it, whereas Prell was uh, more happy to live in the, in the now. Yeah, well... well to talk about prem it's it's probably fair to say that he was more worldly having gone out and fought in world war Two. he'd been in singapore i think for example and you know uh watched a brother die and and so on he maybe had the the bigger worldview than what um manish had just you know listening to his pamphlets yeah absolutely and, and giving it more of a context to ideas and everything I, and again that if you know a little bit about the background of the partition of India, mm. you can then read bigger themes into the episode and w- w- different schools of thought that maybe these characters are by design or accident, I suspect by design, meant to represent. But if you're not uh, aware of that background, they're just good characters with different motivations. So it, it works for all viewers, I think. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned Umbreen earlier. I thought that was a fantastic performance. You know, she was strong when she needed to be. <laughs> yes, her interactions with Yaz did uh, did sort of show up Yaz a little bit, but we'll get to Yaz in a moment, as you say. Just really happy with these characters. They just felt so real to me. The decisions that Umbreen made felt to me like human decisions. Yes. She, she was conflicted. She wasn't happy with the decisions she had to make sometimes, uh, but... She she made them in a human conflicted way and and portrayed that without having to really you know take those you know Greek tragedy masks and now I'm happy and now I'm sad and now I'm happy no she was able to be happy and sad and happy and regretful and and all, all that thing it was yeah really really impressed by this cast they they really made this episode for me as much as the script did to talk of the TARDIS crew though I, I want to jump in first with uh, Graham. Uh, given that I'm Team Graham, and I think Graham had a particularly good episode this time around, and I think that was typified by the scene where he knows that Prem is going to die, and he has to sort of stand there and talk to him before he gets married and, you know, make that chit-chat, knowing that something horrible is about to happen, um, but not being able to let on. That was a fantastic scene. Absolutely fantastic. Everything that you said there, Rob, the way that uh, Bradley Walsh showed us everything that Graham is feeling and you can see just behind his face you can see everything that Graham wants to say and can't and he can't he can't quite hold himself together you can see him you can see the emotion cracking through mm-hmm. through him and he's just holding it in but just you can just see oh, amazing performance that was a wonderful scene yeah, I mean, we thought he was good in Rosa, where he was saying, I don't want to be part of this, and he's about to get off the bus, but then he has to remain on the bus and has to stand up so that Rosa Parks does her thing. That was good. This was much better. 
It, it really was. And the other thing about Graham here is more and more, he's the one that holds this TARDIS crew together. He's the one that when the Doctor sort of says, no, it's time for us to go, he can say, Doctor, this mm. is her grandma. That's not going to work. He doesn't have to argue with her. We don't have to get a, you know anything like that. He just can say, this is, this is not going to work. We need to be different. You need to you need to have a different context, a different approach, and yeah, really effective. I, I I don't think this crew would work without him. No, no, I think it's been really well put together, and he is a, an integral part of it. Which perhaps, if I can segue then into the Doctor, if we, if I may, because I think that the fact that Graham is the one holding together the TARDIS crew does, I'm sorry to say, show the Doctor up a little bit, mm. and. Okay, I'm going to say it outright, and then I'm going to give some some um, caveat to it. Okay, brace yourself, listeners. I thought this was Jodie's weakest performance so far. That is not to say that I thought it was a poor performance throughout the episode, but I thought her lows in this were lower than anything we've seen. Mostly she was fine. Mostly she was good. And a low Jodie is not a bad Jodie. This mm. is this. I hope I, I want to make that clear. But there were a couple of speeches here where I thought she really missed the mark, and this this really was a this really was a bizarre performance from her. Uh, the shouldn't have come speech I thought was really tonally all over the place, and just just really I didn't grasp it at all. The love speech she gave as well, I just thought that was totally flat. I, I was sitting mm. there going, where where are you in this? Like one moment you're totally flat then you sort of give it a bit of a flick at the end and I just didn't didn't know where Jodie was on this thing uh, the scene where she was confronting the demons that was really good that was one of her better moments but and, and, and yeah mostly she was quite good but I thought this was quite a mixed and weak performance from Jodie look I um I agree with you I was watching her thinking She's really understated in this episode. She's really sort of underplaying things. She, she still had a, a few wacky lines here and there, and she does do that thing where she screws up her eye and makes her nostril go large and, you know, pulls that funny face. She did that at least a couple of times, I think. But on the whole, uh, yeah, it was very understated, and I can see why that wasn't coming across for you, certainly. I found it not just understated, but actually flat. Wow. In, wow. Pla- in places, I emphasise, in places. It's interesting because we were saying only last week, we're still getting a feel for this Doctor. And we still don't sort of know where she really sits and what the real Doctor is. So is this where it's settling is is this it or was this an anomaly are we still are we going into episode seven still not entirely sure where she's at well well that's right if if this had come straight after um arachnids in the uk it would have been an even bigger contrast because because we noted in arachnids how over the top and tenant-ish jody was performing and here she's gone almost completely the opposite direction now because we've got the um conundrum thing in the middle it's not quite as stark as it could be but it is you think about over those three episodes there's some wide variation in what she's doing and i don't have a grip of this character i'm i think that's as much to do with the writings as it is to do with the performance but i don't have a grip of this doctor i really don't feel i do yeah, look, that's fair. By the time we were six stories into Davo or Sylvester McCoy or, or whoever, I think you could pretty much write on the back of a postage stamp what the Doctor's character was. With Jodie, mm, 
yeah, I'm, I'm the jury's still out for me. Well, well, context. This for Christopher Eccleston would be the end of Dalek. Yeah, we'll see. We had a great view of him by then. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, look, Team Ryan, your Team Ryan, uh, Dave. Do you want to lead off on Toast and Cole this time around? I actually don't have much to say on him other than he did good with the few lines he had. Once again, in these ensemble pieces, there is not room for everybody. He kind of had to fall back into the background. He had some nice moments. He played them well. I I like his wide-eyed amazement at what he's doing. And I think that for younger viewers especially, he's going to be a real audience identification figure. As he's walking around going, 1947 India, what the hell? Like, wow, oh my God. Whoa, I don't know what, yeah, (laughs) just just mind-blown stuff. That would be where the kids are going, and I think he's that perfect audience identification figure. I liked what he did, but this wasn't his episode. It's a shame that a character as good and as interesting and as well played as Ryan can't be in the forefront of every episode because we have such a large team, but mm. that's the reality. I, 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 yeah, I, I, that's it. That's what I've got to say. Yeah, look, uh, I, I agree with you, and that ties into you know talking about Yaz because... This really was more a Yaz-centric episode with Graham in support, and that's why Ryan fell by the wayside this time around. And in terms of Yaz having the the, the lion's share for a change, it was good to see, but I, I, I don't know whether... It can't be Mandip Gill's acting ability, but there's just something... It just She just wasn't there for me she just, she just wasn't popping off the screen like this is my episode Ta-da! you know but, but, but hang on what was Yaz's role in this episode uh well she got us to where they were because she wanted to see her nanny yes so she was the catalyst to take us to the the location and yeah once there she um didn't have much to do she didn't have anything to do there, there, there was no action or moment or decision that Yaz took that influenced or changed or moved events. If Yaz hadn't turned up, other than giving them a neat excuse to stay a bit longer than the hour, what would have actually changed? She wasn't the one who... She was the one that moved the pin to Sheffield or inspired something or, uh, you know, did something. She didn't get a moment. Like like you mentioned Father's Day earlier, Rob. Mm. At the end of Father's Day, it's Rose's action that sets history back on course. And you learn about Rose through that episode. Rose makes the mistake that sets off the episode. And then Rose is the one who is there to help the episode be fixed. And and he's holding her father at the end of it and changes as a character. You can't say that Yaz did anything remotely on that level in this script. She, she, She was a catalyst. She was a Google take me here. Yeah, yeah, look, because the Doctor was dealing with the Vajarians, um, stealing their minds, you know, messing around like that. Uh, it was Ryan and Graham who were chased through that poppy field by them and ran back to the house, the homestead. Uh, the brothers, well, they were at each other's throats. Um, <laughs> there was no help from Yaz there. Yaz just tended to stand behind her nanny a lot and just sort of look at her wistfully from time to time. Yeah, and even... Again, Rob, you mentioned Graham in Rosa on the bus. Yes. You would have thought Yaz could have had one of those moments. You'd think so, and particularly as this was her episode. Yeah, like, for example, a why are you leaving? Maybe, you know, interesting point of view. Maybe if Yaz had actually been the one who says, why should they be forced off their land? This is wrong. This is unjust. And, and, And I don't care if it means I cease to exist. 
this this is this is wrong, doctor. And the doctor says, no, this is history, and you know, mm. out of this will come something good, and you're good. You know, something, something for Yaz to do. If Yaz was erased from this series, I would not miss her at all. No, no, and that's a really sad thing to say. Yeah, it is. I don't say it with any relish, but no, um, we're six episodes in. I love what Graham's doing. I love what Ryan's doing. The, the The Doctor's been a bit up and down for me. Good moments, bad moments. Yaz is just irrelevant. And yeah. that's a waste of a companion. Yeah, even here in Yaz's version of Father's Day, her own episode, she still didn't... <laughs> she still didn't get there. And that's that's a shame. I mean, you know, for a moment there, I thought they were even going to go down that whole Sound of Thunder butterfly effect sort of thing, and they, they pulled back from that. Yeah, yeah, look, it's it's interesting. And that's why this, uh, when I get to my score, it's not going to be a perfect episode by any means. But it still was a good episode, Dave. Oh, look, it absolutely was. And the resolution was very powerful. I thought the way they played it was really good. The acting, again, between Prem and Manish was superb. The direction of that, that was really, really well. It suggested rather than showed. As I said, the moment when the demons... Um, lorped in there and said now we will watch and you go wow oh my god it's happening and the the gunshot it was superbly done superbly done yeah and again to to hark back to Rosa we have the doctor just uh, before she was just sitting on the bus looking straight ahead here she was walking away from the scene eyes straight ahead just waiting for that gunshot and it happens and very very powerful stuff um, although I'm starting to wonder now, we've got another historical coming up later in this series. Um, I'm just wondering whether it just becomes the same thing again, though. Like history can't be changed, so let's just walk away with a sad look on our face. You know, I don't, I don't want that to be the only way they do historicals now. <laughs> no, and I guess having sort of done Marco Polo and the Aztecs, what we want to see from the next one is more something like the Reign of Terror or the Romans, a little bit more fun, a little bit different. That would be good. I, I don't have any sense what the... Um, this is the one with Alan Cumming in it, isn't it, that we're talking about yeah. later in the series? Yeah, I have no idea whether they're going to play it for laughs or, or do something quite serious. No idea at all. No, me either. Mm. Well, now's as good a time as any to mention the Chibnall death count. <coughs> and we are up to 12, up from 10 last week to 12. We had the holy man die, and of course we had Prem die. Uh, yes, both very effectively done. Yeah, and of course, a million people in the partition as well. I don't think we can add that, though, to Chibnall's death count. No, I think that would be a little unfair. <laughs> a little crass, too, probably. Yeah, yeah. A um, couple of brief comments from me. Yes. I still think the TARDIS console room is stupid. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. What were those moving bits? Did you see those moving bits at the very top of the screen? Yeah, that was odd. They uh, like bits of the well, what used to be coral, but is now crystal. They were sort of moving up and down, and so I thought, "What the hell's that?" Was that meant to be the central column or part of it? No, that's like the the bits of decoration around the console. Yeah, it was. I, I, it's just awful. Yeah, why does that need to move? Um, although one thing I did notice when they were flying the TARDIS at the start and they were pushing and pulling a lot of buttons and dials and things, I noticed we've never gone back to that biscuit. And that's good. You know, in that first episode, the uh, the biscuit popped out and people were like, oh my God, this is a thing now. Uh, the same as seeing that crystal-like uh, TARDIS, which is meant to be the chameleon circuit thing. We've never gone back to those things. Have you noticed that? I did notice that. I was actually thinking that earlier. 
while watching this that we didn't have that little TARDIS model thing. So, yeah. Yeah, so a few things from that first episode that pushed people's buttons haven't really come up again. And I didn't think we'd go back to the biscuit thing again, to be honest. I thought that was more of a just a sight gag, bit of fun, but it wouldn't be overplayed. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the way to do it. And what did you think of the closing credits, Rob? Oh, I'm conflicted on this, Dave, because <laughs> I there was that lovely chanting going on. I think, ah, oh, nice chanting. Then I thought, hang on, they're not... Oh my God, they are. It's the theme. They're doing the theme. And I I didn't know whether it was cheesy or not. I kind of lean towards it being a bit cheesy. I lean a little bit towards it being cheesy, but I'm a bit more forgiving because I love the music all the way through this. Oh, look, and that's been a standout in every episode of the, the series so far. I think we've said the music has been great and atmospheric. Uh, we, we have. Uh, you, you've probably noticed it more than I have, that being a bit more of your shtick. Mm. This is one where I really noticed the way the music was done. And I've, I've actually been listening to Marco Polo recently. And I'll talk about that a bit more in our monthly episode in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But, but this, again, reminded me very much of, of, of that. And, yeah, it was really nicely done. Uh, outside of that, we did get to see Yaz's family, I guess, briefly again. That was nice. I think they're a nice family, and it's nice to have that sort of domestic kitchen sink uh, soap opera feel from the RTD days that does permeate this series so far. It is, although it's interesting. I kind of wonder, does the Doctor just sit around the TARDIS waiting for them to come back, or was the Doctor off doing something else? That's a minor point, I know. Oh, look, who, who knows? I mean, we've already touched on the fact that they got the TARDIS back and that was never explained. So, you know, why would they explain that, Dave? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at least when Moffat did the whole we're going back to visit our family sort of thing, particularly with um, Amy and Rory, it was a sort of you, you showed how the Doctor worked in with all of that. Um, no, we don't have that here. Well, Rob, that's all other discussion points I've got. Shall we head off to the sports desk? Let's go. Rob, your play of the week. Dave, my play of the week was, and this may seem cliched, another historical wins the day. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast. It can't be a fluke that when we go back in time, we seem to have the better episodes. I'm really looking forward to our next historical episode later in the series. Uh, So my play of the week, I was tossing up between two moments. I was tossing up between the climax of the episode and the Graham Prem conversation, and I'm going to land on the Graham Prem conversation. I just thought that was a wonderful piece of script writing and an amazingly good performance. I I really liked that moment, but there were a couple of really good moments in there. Even indeed the conversation with between the Doctor and the Demons, where she realizes how wrong she was, and they tell their story and mm. how that changed their their race's attitude. That was a great moment. There's some really good moments in this. As you said, the historical stuff. There's a lot of things I could have picked. I, I could just keep going, but... Oh, absolutely. I mean, I waxed lyrical about that scene with Graham earlier. You know, that could easily be my pick as well. But I, I just wanted to go broad and say, historicals, yay. Yeah, well, I'm going to go precise. I'm going for that scene. That was my play of the week. All right. Foul of the week, Dave. What was your foul? Uh, I'm giving it to, I'm sorry to say, Jodie Whittaker for the way she played the wedding. I just thought it was completely off kilter completely out of sync with what was going on and what should have been the positive emotional highlight of the episode 
contrasted with the negative emotional highlight of, of, of Prem getting killed, I just think didn't work. It wasn't balanced. And I think Whitaker can do better. And I'm, I'm not a Whitaker hater. I've loved some stuff, but I'm going to call it out where I see it. And I thought that was a bad performance. Okay. I've touched on my foul of the week earlier, and that's these aliens who aren't a real threat. Um, it's a shame because I think in this episode they were probably done the best out of all the aliens who aren't a real threat in this series. You know, you think back to the Pating last week, he's not a threat, he just eats bits of metal, you know, and energy, you know, he's not going to hurt anybody, and, and the space Nazi and so on, you know, none of them have been a real, real threat. Um, here we had them, again, not a real threat, so it's it's got to be foul of the week for me, even if they were done the best so far this series. Fair enough. And Rob, who is your player of this week? My player of the week is Graham. I'm reverting to Graham because <laughs> I just think that scene was great. I think he was the best uh, TARDIS team member in the uh, in the piece. I know the support cast were really good this week too, but Bradley Walsh, I'm just so excited when I listen to British podcasts and they're like, Bradley Walsh, how good's he going? You know, they're, they're absolutely stunned, you know, because to him he's just this funny guy off a, you know quiz show or something on television um i'm just wrapped with how well he's going yeah it is funny listening to those because he really is a blank slate for us but i guess for them it must be like you know baby john burgess or tony barber rocking up in doctor (laughs) who and 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 doing a really good job i mean that must be what it's like grant Danya. yeah that sort of thing yeah yeah (laughs) gee that's a scary thought yeah uh my player of the week I am giving to Hamza Jatua. Ah, Manish. Manish. I just thought that was a really amazing performance. A character that could have fallen the wrong side of wicked or cliched or evil or um, overplayed or underplayed. There there, there were so many ways this character could have gone wrong. Mm. And he walked that line in a way that I felt he was totally understandable in some ways, in moments, almost relatable, almost sympathetic, ne- never never empathetic. I never agreed with him, but I, I could see his world mm. and I could see the path that had led a young man to do this thing. And for him to make that work, made the episode work and, and made this whole thing come together. And that's a really hard context. I did come close to giving it to Bradley Walsh. Mm-hmm. But the reason I didn't is that Bradley Walsh is doing this on the on, on the run, having done five episodes. Um, Hamza Jutua did this from a standing start. Yeah, and so I'm giving him a couple of extra you know points there, and yeah, giving him my player of the week. Yeah, and no mean feat in a 45, 50 minute episode, whatever it was, where Jody's got to do things, and Bradley's got to do things, and Tosin's doing things, and Mandip's doing things, and, you know, Amita Suman, who was Umbreen, is doing things, and Shane Zaza, who was Prem, is doing things. You know, for Hamza to come in and be able to sell us that character with, you know, fairly limited yes. screen time, amazing. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, Dave, it's probably time to, to sort of wrap up our thoughts on the episode, give our score out of 10, talk about our words of the week, and then we've got some uh, feedback from Twitter. Excellent. Well, look, I'll, I'll kick us off. Okay. And I'm just going to repeat that I've really enjoyed this episode. The more I've talked about it, the more I've realized how much I like it. I, I think it is the best of the run. Uh, 
so that means it now has to displace Rosa. That's fine. I think this had a few extra layers than Rosa did. And I think this is one that will bear repeated viewings better than Rosa has, which is not to diss Rosa. I'm just saying that that is mm. a better episode. It goes down a little bit because of a point I'm going to make when I do my word of the week in a, in a tick. And also because of that, that, that Jody performance. But I'm giving it an 8.5 and I'm very happy to do so. Dave, I almost gave it an 8.5. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. Um, I was thinking eight at eight and a half. You know, I'm, I was thinking of what I gave Rosa, and and like a lot of episodes this series, as the weeks go on and we see more episodes, I kind of reevaluate the scores in my head. So although an eight out of ten is less than what I gave Rosa, I do think this is probably a better episode than Rosa, like you do. Um, I'm just sort of re rejuggling those scores. It didn't get an eight and a half out of ten for me though, because I think after a really you know. <sighs> disappointing string of fairly basic Chibnall stories I think we see a, a good episode and we elevate it just that little bit more okay. <laughs> like oh this was amazing because Christ look at what we've had you know and that's maybe where my point five was coming from because uh, I was throwing just a little bit more at it I think because of what we'd had in past weeks. So I thought, no, if I put that aside, just think of it as an episode it's a solid 8 out of 10 that I really, really enjoyed Okay, so Rob, your word of the week was... Destined. And why was that? Two reasons, Dave. I think this uh, episode was all about something that was destined to happen. You know, come what may, i.e. Prem would be shot. Come what may, it was destined. Um, But at the same time, and maybe in a bit of a meta sense, I sensed that this episode was destined to be a good one as we were going historical again and (laughs) we didn't have Chris Chibnall as the writer. Okay. Uh, So my word of the week was context Mm. and a double meaning from me as well. Partly it was that this is a story that works only in a particular historical context and it's about that context without just being that context, if if, you know what I mean. And I spoke about that earlier. The other thing is, and this is the point that you've mentioned a couple of times, Rob, the context in viewing this story is, I think, very important Yes, in terms of, as you said, after a run of Chibnall being a non-Chibnall, gave it a, perhaps a bit of a boost. But also, I think if this story just came up randomly, we would have been, and, and I'll, I'll ask for your view on this, Rob, we would have been really, really comfortable with the way that the demons turned out to be not really demons and that twist. But because it's come after five episodes of other lackluster villains or baddies or monsters or big bads, whatever you call them, mm. that actually does diminish them and they don't have quite the same impact. Yeah, I I completely agree, and I hope I've got that across uh, during this episode. As much as I like the story, I think it was still disappointing that yet again we sort of had the same vibe going on with with the villains. And this happened in a Capaldi series, as I seem to recall as well, because people say, oh, this is so novel, this is so interesting. And it's like, yeah, we've done it only a, two or three years back, I think. I think it was last time was last time. Yeah, there you go. Remember we had Smile and we had that haunted house that wasn't really haunted and... That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the last Capaldi. Yeah, yeah, okay. It seems so long ago now. Do we have any feedback this week, Rob? We do, Dave, we do. Bernard D at Bernard JKD says, Another strong historical with a pepper shake of very average sci-fi. Good Sunday night viewing, although would be lost on a Saturday night. For me, though, the 13th Doctor is lost now simply being a sonic-waving deus ex machina. That sounds like a slightly more extreme uh, <laughs> view 
sorry, that sounds like a slightly more extreme version of what I said. So I get where Bernard's coming from, but I think we've learned that Bernard is a very uh, firm and passionate in his views. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. Uh, David Clark at David Clark fourteen. Hot take. Yaz episode really good. A balance of use of all the companions and a good, well written story. The Doctor really arrived in this one. A strong eight out of ten for me. Uh, still Team Graham, but the Doctor was my star player. That's a really interesting view, and mm. and it shows that these hot takes can be really, really different and. Maybe I've maybe I've missed something. Maybe on repeated viewings, I'll I'll like what Jodie did here better, or maybe it just didn't work for me. This is going to be another one where it'll be interesting to see the broader opinions. Now we leave our sheltered bubble and and and, <laughs> and, and have done a hot take and go out into the world. Precisely. And finally, Mike Solko at Ma Solko, friend of the show, of course, and sometimes co-host. Mike says, as much as this will sound like hyperbole, tonight's episode was the best in years. The characterization was strong, the aliens were interesting and had great effects, and it served to give a glimpse into an historical event that is often overlooked in Western culture. Easily 10 out of 10. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the music as well. That take on the closing theme was gorgeous. Akinola is to be my MVP for Series 11. That's a really positive view, and yeah, I'm really pleased that Mike enjoyed it. And I hope a lot of others enjoyed this one as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Dave, uh, next week we have Kablam. Is that what it's called? I, I, it's, okay, good. <laughs> yes, it's called Kablam, and it has Lee Mack in it, and that's all I know. Fair enough, but if you want something a bit different from our hot takes, or, or you're sick of podcasting Season 11 reviews, Mark, I'm talking to you, uh, <laughs> then, then we actually do have a special episode out, the Podcast of Decision. Yes, indeed. We recorded this uh Oh, a few weeks back with uh, two members of the Flight Through Entirety team. And, of course, they also do the Jody into Terror. Um, what do they call those? Reaction casts. Yes, yes. So these are two people that are working their way through Doctor Who in order. They're up to the Eccleston series at the moment. In fact, they've just released an episode on uh, Bad Wolf, which is a fantastic episode. Uh, mm. But if you just want to hear the four of us in a room chatting about a random assortment of Doctor Who topics, something a bit different, check out that special. Yeah, one mic on the table, four guys just talking who. Absolutely. <laughs> but we'll be back with another review in a week's time and indeed our monthly not long after that. That's right, Dave. And we'll be doing, uh, obviously, a wrap-up of episodes, I think, four, five, six, and seven in that monthly episode, seeing if we've changed our minds about any of it. Fantastic. Well, until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. We'll speak again very shortly. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.